Welcome to the Green Edge podcast with Michael Cross and me, Fraser Harper. This is our update for the week ending 13th of October 2023. As the world accelerates its transition towards sustainable energy solutions, the concept of giving electric vehicle batteries a second life has gained significant attention. Beyond their primary function of powering electric cars, these advanced lithium-ion batteries can be versatile and valuable assets even after their automotive tenure. This approach seeks to harness the residual energy capacity of used EV batteries for various applications, ranging from stationary energy storage systems to renewable energy integration and grid stabilization. Embracing the second life of electric vehicle batteries not only extends their usefulness, but also contributes to a more sustainable and eco-friendly future, making it a compelling endeavour at the intersection of transportation and renewable energy technologies. And in our post this week, we write about this, along with Humvees going hybrid, the M25 becoming a fume-free car park, and lithium mines springing up, or rather down, in Cornwall and County Durham. Michael, this is a big topic, isn't it? It is, and I think our emphasis here on the afterlife of EV batteries is quite interesting because what we're trying to say is, yes, EVs are really important and will drive battery usage, but there are 10, 12 other major markets before you even get into the recycling of the original EV battery. And it is difficult to say how many jobs that will create, but it'll be fairly significant particularly as people seek to ensure sustainable supplies of reliable lithium as lithium batteries continue and before battery technology starts to change and use different minerals. Actually, I like the concept of using an EV battery in another EV. But I think one important thing to remember is that the future of batteries isn't all about lithium. There are new battery technologies bubbling along, like graphene batteries, which are actually based on nanotechnology, and in some quarters at least have been suggested as a serious contender to lithium. And in our post, we mentioned the new battery facility being built by Infinity, who announced in April this year that it got a splash of Desnes cash to the tune of 11 million to build the largest grid-scale battery ever manufactured in the UK. Now, that's a flow battery, which generates electricity by pumping different chemicals between tanks. And it seems that's a pretty scalable solution for things like grid batteries, because if you want a bigger battery, you just put in bigger tanks. Now, the Infinity flow battery uses vanadium, but there are other variations that use metals like zinc. Michael, who do you think might be the world's largest producer of both vanadium and zinc? I think that might be our favourite Asian country called China. China dominates the whole EV system, by and large, from raw materials right through to the manufacturing, like it does with solar, and is a major, major player. So finding alternative sources and alternative ways of doing these things is a good thing. But as we move to flow batteries, say in a motor car, it means the range increases quite dramatically. And I think the charge speed also reduces hugely. I think the ranges that Toyota are talking about with a flow battery will be up to about a 1,000 kilometers. And that is a dramatic change from where we are today. And charging times, almost like going to a traditional petrol station, you'd be in there 15 to 20 minutes. Now, if that was to proven true over the next, say, five years, possibly a bit longer, is quite a significant change. And a lot of people are writing about this. I remember reading in a post from LSE earlier this year about how the supply chain for electric car batteries is changing the world's geopolitics. 
It is. And people are searching out and looking at their supply chains in quite a different way. And this is a major shift for car manufacturers having to think about supply chains in such a detailed way and sourcing strategies and dealing with countries where they need their national governments to have good, strong, deep connections to allow the flow of materials to occur. Well, look, as far as I'm aware, you can't yet buy vanadium on Amazon, but uh, everything else seems to be from China when you go on there. Anyway, we know that lithium production is concentrated in countries like Australia, Chile and China, as we said, while cobalt primarily sourced from DRC. And Australia might be hanging on to their lithium now that they've been bounced out of the Rugby World Cup. Let's talk about the Rugby World Cup, Michael. Now that the group stage is over, what's your feeling? I still think South Africa is probably the team to beat. I know they've already been beaten, but I think they will build momentum and strength from that. I think they have the spread of squad and depth of squad and experience to actually take them to the final. If they'll win it, another matter, because you've got two, in essence, finals coming up. You've got the French playing the South Africans and New Zealand playing Ireland. They are both worthy of the final. And it's unfortunate we're having them next weekend. Meanwhile, minnows like England and Fiji battle it out for a slot in the semi-final which will be interesting to see who gets there. Fiji had a blip, of course, and lost to the Portuguese. Portuguese well done, Portugal. Yeah. Well done, indeed, Portugal. Indeed, indeed. Now that raises another question, doesn't it? And that is six nations? Or seven nations. Seven nations. I'd like to see two European leagues, and I'd like to see promotion and relegation. I think that would really focus time and attention on developing rugby across Europe and bringing other nations through at the same time, like Romania, like Georgia, like Spain, Portugal and the like. And it would be healthy to have one of the supposed bigger nations relegated to actually encourage broader thinking on rugby and move it forward before the next World Cup. Absolutely. Well, as you say, two very big games this weekend that you could argue should really have been the semi-finals. I'll be watching the South Africa-France game with my good lady, who is South African, hoping Andre Pollard can make the difference to the Springboks kicking at least. Now, just going back to the world of batteries, we've commented a few times on the European All-Bats project, haven't we? We have. I think it's an excellent scheme and driven by the users and manufacturers of batteries. And they've developed 26 skill profile cards that cover the main roles. And it's a great core set that can be built on as the battery industry develops and emerges into new materials, reusage and recycling. So I think they have provided a great service for the whole European industry. And that could be used anywhere in the world. Yes, indeed. And a reminder that you can find this week's post resplendent with coloured charts and other good things on greenedge.substack.com. And you can also find this podcast on all the major streaming platforms, including Apple, Google and Amazon. But no vanadium yet on Amazon, I think. Right, Michael, you've just seen something interesting from the Institute of Public Policy Research. Yes, they've introduced a rather interesting and short report looking at the logic of having a green industrial strategy, which is something I think we'd agree with. They also then make some comparisons with other countries, suggesting had we had an active green industrial strategy, there'd be extra jobs in certain sectors. I think that's quite an interesting challenge, but I think some of their methodology you could query a little bit in that they've chosen countries that have had a very long-term approach 
to the development of a renewable sector. If you take Denmark as an example, Denmark started on this road in 1973 when there were a series of major oil shocks. And they then said, we need to become sustainable. We also need to have security of supply of energy. And that started the transition from Dong, the Danish oil and natural gas company, to Orsted over many, many years. They are now a world leader in offshore and onshore wind and renewables. And I think you've got to view the comparisons where you've had consistent industrial strategies and supporting policies running over 30, 40 years, irrespective of the political colour of the party in power in those countries. And I think if we're going to make those comparisons, we need to buy into this long-term, consistent approach. And looking at that IPPR report, it's interesting to read its comment on the offshore and onshore wind industries, which it describes as a squandered opportunity to create domestic manufacturing supply chains and the associated jobs. And compare that with what we read on the Department of Business and Trade's website about the government's ambition to achieve up to 50 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030 and how that could support up to 90,000 direct and indirect jobs in the UK. As Cuba Gooding Jr. said to Tom Cruise in Jerry Maguire, show me the money. Thank you for listening to this Green Edge podcast. This podcast series accompanies the Green Edge newsletter, to which you can subscribe at greenedge.substack.com. The Green Edge is produced by Blue Mirror Insights.